Let us take our Bibles at this time and turn to two passages. Mark 9 is first, and Matthew 17 is, will be our text for this evening as we continue our series on the book of Matthew. At Mark 9, <clears throat> and we read of a few things after the visit of Elijah and Moses with Jesus and the three disciples on the Transfiguration Mount, we read now what happened to them immediately. They came down from the mount. In Mark 9, 9 through 13, we read, Now as they came down from the mountain, he, Jesus, commanded that they should tell no one the things they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, And they did him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now we go to Matthew 17, 9 through 13. Once again, 9 through 13. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Just to make clear, the vision is literally the things that you saw. This was not a vision This was a a literal earthly experience of the disciples. Tell what you saw to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Thus far we read this account of the disciples with Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, having an important question on their mind, and Jesus, the wisdom of God, giving them the answer from heaven. They Disciples have been to heaven. We saw this last time. They were taken up to heaven. And I know this was not really heaven. It was a mountain. We don't know where. A high mountain. And Jesus, we read in another passage, was going up there to pray. It could have been nighttime. It was quiet. He's with his special disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they are... Uh, made aware of this amazing glorification of Jesus in anticipation of his ascension to heaven. For there comes to Jesus this great glory, this radiance from heaven and shines about him. And he is such that the disciples are, are in awe of his great, bright, shining glory. And then there's Moses and Elijah And they're talking with Jesus, and these three are talking, we read in Luke, I believe, about Jesus' death. 
his decease, his departure, literally his exodus, because his death will not just be a departure, it will be uh, as Israel, Jesus represents Israel in their exodus from death and their being taken into the land of, of glory, into the fellowship of God and life itself. More on that presently. But they're talking about these things, Moses representing the law and Elijah the prophets and Jesus the fulfillment of them all. And so the disciples themselves are, they're taking it all in and then there comes something from heaven that, may, that really breaks them. It's the voice of God the Father who says to the disciples, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. And at that, the disciples melt away into their own insignificance and they cower in fear until Jesus comes and he comes to them and touches them and says, Arise, do not be afraid. Now it's at this point, when they have lifted up their eyes, that they come down, they see Jesus, and he commands them as they're coming down to tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. But then they have this question, which is our text about Elijah and his coming. So they've been to heaven, and they've been to heaven, and at this time Jesus tells them, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone of this glory. And the disciples listened. They didn't tell anybody until after he had risen from the dead. Amazing. What's this all about? What also is this all about that they're talking about Elijah as they're coming down from the mountain? What is that all about? And what is Jesus saying to them when he speaks of John's suffering and his having to suffer as well? And how does this fit in the gospel scheme of things? And beloved, how does it relate to us? This is what we want to ask as well. The disciples were told to be quiet. Surely Jesus isn't telling us that, and we know he's not. We're to go and tell it on the mountains and over the hills and everywhere that Jesus is born and suffered and died and rose again and is coming again. But how does this relate to this incident, this amazing incident in the life of Jesus and the reflection of the disciples on that incident? Well, let's hear from the Word of God. And with the disciples, let's be sorting things out as they come down from the mount. And so we want to consider the call which they're heeding at this time to hear Jesus. They're heeding this call. They're wanting to heed this call. They don't understand this visit of Elijah and Moses with Jesus. But they're hearing him through Elijah now. There's a special thing there to learn here through this Elijah that uh, they're, they're, Jesus will talk about. But then to connect the church with this, and this is certainly biblical, how we are to hear Jesus through the church. And what I'm going to bring to your attention is in, in some very special way, we are like Elijah. And we come in the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of Christ, in these latter days after Jesus has gone away. And so, first of all, I have to clear up this question about Elijah. This is crucial. 
The disciples have been told by God the Father, hear my son. But they have a problem. They have been made blessed by their being able to see Elijah and Moses together talking to Jesus about his decease. But the question is, how does this fit in with the rest of the Bible? It seems to them that there's a contradiction here between this appearance of Jesus and especially Elijah. They have Elijah on the brain. They can't get over this. Because they know something of the Bible and the interpretation of scribes with regard to Elijah. And their question is something like this. It's certainly related to the vision they've just seen. In the Bible, it speaks of Elijah first coming, then Jesus. And Elijah coming and preparing the way of the Lord, according to the prophecy of Malachi. And I'll read that presently. But here, Elijah comes, and Jesus has already been here. Jesus has been here ministering to us and for us, and even though he says he's going to die, he's still here. But now Elijah comes, and he's coming after Jesus. How can this be? So the disciples ask, why then, in light of the vision we've just seen, or the, the, the appearances we've just seen, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now I say to you, in light of what we just heard here about what went on in, on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, this is a very crucial time. Because the Father from heaven has said, you hear my son. Hear him. Listen to him. Obey him. Receive his doctrine. Follow him wherever he goes. Do whatever he says. He's my son. He's this wonderful son of my eternal love and, and glory. Hear him. But it seems to them that if they do that, they're going to have to believe something contrary to the scripture in light of what they've seen. Elijah's coming after Jesus and the scripture according to the scribes and they're tending to believe him because it says it plainly in Malachi says that Elijah must first come. So that's the question they have. How can you hear Jesus if he's not really fulfilling prophecy? He's contrary to the Old Testament word of the Old Testament prophet. How can that prophecy be true when we're told that Messiah comes after Elijah, not before him, as it seems to be the case? Well, Jesus answers, and he says in, so many, in, in these words here, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus identifies John the Baptist, or Elijah, as John the Baptist. The mystical Elijah, 
who comes before Jesus. And certainly John the Baptist did. Well, what about this? Malachi 4, we turn to that. And verses 4 and 5, or 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. There it is. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Well, beloved, that doesn't even seem like John the Baptist, does it? Because it says that he comes right before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and and it says that he's going to restore all things, but is this true of John the Baptist? Well, Jesus says it is. And the disciples seem content with that, and, and we ought to be too. Because it's indeed true. John the Baptist was Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah, just like Luke said he would. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, God says there of the wonderful special time of Zacharias and Elizabeth, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people for be prepared for the Lord. There it is. The word from heaven to Zacharias and Elizabeth of the real spiritual identity of Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah, he is John the Baptist come in the spirit and power of Elijah to work a great work of redemption among the people. Jesus himself will speak of this when he announces things about John the Baptist that only he could understand at that time. Matthew eleven seven. as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi 3.1. Another prophecy there. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until the now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he, John, is Elijah, who is to come. He has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus has already told the disciples, all of them, and now just those three apparently, he's still talking to them, Peter, James, and John, that Elijah is John the Baptist. He's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is Elijah, the forerunner of the Lord. Now, they hear the Son here, just as the Father said they should. They hear the Son. 
And there's no indication that they didn't believe him. But you see what Jesus is doing here. He's showing him them that he ought to be heard because he correctly interprets prophecy as the one who uh, is the one who sends the spirit of all prophecy and who is the very word of God himself. He has the right interpretation. He's greater than Moses and Elijah and also John the Baptist and also the scribes. See, the scribes, and we'll read more of them later on in this chapter, were the blind leading the blind. They were interpreting, yes, rightly, this, Elijah first, then Messiah, and seeing everything in light of the prophecy, however, without Jesus. Their grid was Old Testament law. That's what they saw everything through. And they were forgetting the promise of God, of the seed of the woman, and of the seed of Abraham, and of the seed of David, who would be Christ the Lord, and they were forgetting and neglecting to believe that this could possibly be being fulfilled in John the Baptist, forerunner, and the one who's running, he's running before Jesus. They didn't get it. So yes, they were right after a fashion, but Jesus is right to the heart of it. John the Baptist is this Elijah to come. Yes, there's Elijah, the one who never died, speaking in glory, the glory of the Transfiguration Mount to Jesus with Moses as those who testified of Jesus beforehand and of his sufferings and glory of his exodus and Israel's exodus in him. But Jesus is far greater than either Moses or Elijah or John the Baptist. And that's what they're being led to here, to understand that Jesus is the greater one. Jesus is the focus of attention. They had been led to that already when Peter had said, I'm going to build you some tabernacles here, Lord. Let's, let's build some tents for you on this cold and windy mountain or whatever. Let's celebrate the dawning of the, of the final Feast of Tabernacles at the end of which the, surely the kingdom of heaven is come and, and everything is going to be consummated and fulfilled and so on. And Well, that doesn't happen. And Jesus really ignores his request, doesn't even vouchsafe to address his request to build tabernacles. And then Elijah and Moses go away and Jesus is the only one. They're back to normal. Jesus, the only one. That's it. Jesus, the only one. Hear him. And they come down from the mountain and they're met with other voices and other problems, maybe that's the problem, they're coming down from heaven and it's a letdown that we can all have and we're going to hear Jesus on the mountain, coming down the mountain and here's real life and there's no glory that we see in Jesus and no form once again that we should desire him. And we have these problems then. For a while, on the mount, no problems in heaven. 
And we're agreeing with God only though we fear him and we tremble before him. We're agreeing with God and we're yielding to the word, hear my son. And they come down and they start getting into theological mind-bending questions. And maybe this is a great temptation for the disciples even too. How can we hear Jesus and Elijah's supposed to come first and, well, he clears that up. But there's still something they don't get, like everything. (laughs) For the fifth time in the Gospels, Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. Hear about his glory, but don't tell anybody about my suffering. He said that repeatedly. Don't do that. Don't do that. They're not ready. The political climate is such that this would just meet with antagonism. And the spiritual climate is such that this heralding of Jesus' death and demise and then of his resurrection, they didn't know what that is. It would be met with spiritual confusion. They couldn't take it. And it could well be also that Jesus is telling them for the fifth time, now you be quiet about these things of my suffering, my demise, my exodus, and then my rising from the dead because I don't want my death to be premature. I'm going to the cross and to that death and I don't want you people to take me by your hands and make me king on your own to be like Caesar or David or Solomon. There's, a, there's ignorance among the disciples. Shh, Jesus says. Quiet. And about this glory, now you be quiet until after I rise from the dead. And what he's saying there is that the resurrection, that'll confirm the significance of my dying. That'll be that which puts it all together It will be the seal of my dying for sin and it will be the seal of my being approved by the Father for your sake as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But they won't understand that before he rises. They're questioning among themselves, what is this resurrection of the dead? And what is it, this death? And far be it from you, Lord. They, they just can't put it together. Too bad. Because Moses and Elijah, and the Spirit was in them, were testifying before him exactly what they were to be quiet about of the sufferings and death of Christ and the glory that should follow. That's 1 Peter 1 and verse 10. All of the Old Testament represented by law, Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet of prophets, that was speaking of the one thing, the Messiah who comes and dies and takes away sin and carves out a place in the the kingdom of heaven for people who are worthless and worth less than worthlessness. And by his glory rising for our justification. They didn't get it. 
They have to be quiet about it. But Elijah has come. John the Baptist has come. And there's a beginning. Some people wonder how this can be. Jesus says, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. And then how Jesus can say of this Elijah that he's come already. Where is this? This restoration of all things in John the Baptist. What is that? Well, if you look at it, beloved, if you look at the narrative of John the Baptist, he indeed was causing quite a stir. People were counting him as a prophet. Herod was fearful of putting him to death at first because he feared the multitude. They counted him as a prophet. And when he came, he was preaching repentance. And the, many of the, the, the leaders of Jewry were coming to him and believing that this was this forerunner. And they, they were being baptized and they were repenting for them sins so that there was, even as Jesus reminds us a kind of restoration of all things in the sense of there was a real reformation, a heart work and widespread in Israel. This was something that happened. And if we look at the prophecy of Malachi, that this would occur before the dreadful day of the Lord, we're mindful of the fact that this Elijah, John the Baptist forerunner, came And he came before Jesus would die, and Jesus would die, and the Spirit would be poured out, and that would be the fulfillment of the great and notable day of the Lord come, Peter says in Acts 2, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. So there's connections here. It's true we ought to hear the son when he identifies John the Baptist with Elijah, Elijah with John the Baptist, because he comes in the spirit of of Elijah, because there's this beginning of things. There's this beginning of things. Beginning of good things and glorious things, but not without suffering. And that's the point I want to leave you with before we go on to the second point. Elijah is coming, and he already has come. He will restore all things, Jesus says, And he's simply speaking there as what is going to happen when he comes. But then he reflects upon the fact that Elijah has already come historically. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Then Jesus links his own coming with John the Baptist's coming and John the Baptist's suffering with his. Likewise, he says, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Now what Jesus seems to be doing here is linking himself with John the Baptist who begins a great work of the restoration of all things. It's the kingdom of heaven at hand. With himself, who will himself establish in his blood the kingdom of heaven, but only through that blood, only through that suffering. So here... It's this heaven come or this beginning of restoration of all things, but there's suffering. There's suffering. There's death. There's suffering with everyone related to Jesus. The forerunner who who was killed by Herod, off with his head. And Jesus himself 
comes and he must suffer at the hands of these scoundrels. That's what they needed to know. And that glory, the true and final restoration of all things, is to come. It's come, but it is to come. There's this beginning, but there's this double fulfillment here. And that's why I believe, and though many may disagree with me on this, many commentators, that Jesus is speaking here of John the Baptist, Elijah who's come, who will restore all things, and whom the people rejected. But he's also speaking of another Elijah, who is, as the tense says, coming first, who will restore all things. So there's a double fulfillment here, something that can hardly be understood by the apostles at this time before the Spirit is poured out, but we can know. Jesus is speaking of an Elijah who's coming first and will restore all things, and I believe that's at the end of time. After the Elijah, John the Baptist, I say to you that Elijah has come already, but they did not know him. They did to him whatever they wished. That's John the Baptist, and Jesus says that. But there's another fulfillment of Elijah. And that, beloved, is the church. In fact, we are, on the behalf of God, as Jesus says, even greater in the kingdom than John the Baptist, that Elijah who was to come and who came. Because we have the Spirit of Christ Not just the spirit of Elijah, that's the same as the spirit of Christ, but the spirit of all the prophets and the spirit of Christ who's poured out upon the church. And this, my second point, is what I want you to ponder here and and me to ponder in light of the, the full revelation of the scripture and of the fact that we are called to be those who aren't silent anymore. Jesus doesn't say to us, shh. He says, shout. The disciples, you see, they're all in a a quandary. We want to hear Jesus, and yet the scribes are saying that Elijah must come first, and Jesus sorts that out. But there's still some mystery, something here that's laying hidden in this prophecy at the first of Elijah who's coming first and who will restore all things. And I believe that's the prophecy of the church, which is like Elijah, in that we are a witness to God against all that is wicked in the world and in the church, and which shall witness and testify, fully understanding the death, resurrection, and coming again of Jesus. I'm referring to what other, thing, what other commentaries think is being referred to here, to Revelation chapter 11. You can turn with me if you want to that, but certainly listen closely. And Revelation 11 speaks here of the fact that there's two witnesses. Revelation 11, 3. 
I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Sounds kind of like John the Baptist and Elijah. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. So there's two witnesses. They have great power, even so that from their mouth there's judgment upon their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this matter. Note this. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they wish. Sounds like the power that was given to Elijah in the time of Ahab to shut heaven in the name of God because of judgment for their idolatry. Now move on. When they finish their testimony, the two witnesses, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified, reference to Jerusalem. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth." The idea seems to be this, beloved. There's these two witnesses at the end of time. It doesn't say when at the end of time, but I believe it's the entire time until the very end. The church. Old and New Testament call them those who have the law and the prophets and who summarize everything they're going to say in Jesus to whom the law and the prophets points. They have the spirit of Elijah And of Jesus, who's exalted. They know what the disciples did not know. And for this, they preach and they have power. The keys of the kingdom power to open and to shut heaven itself. And they are despised for this. And as the church of the New Testament, yes, there's suffering that awaits them. Even to fulfill the sufferings of Christ, not to atone, but to participate as his body in the sufferings for his sake that gives him glory. And they preach and they preach and they preach as Jesus says to the disciples, you are my witnesses to the end of the earth, the end of the age. In the same spirit of John the Baptist who came first and of the John the Baptist, no, of the Elijah church that will have his spirit and power through the preaching of the gospel. Now that's how I believe we can learn from this. And beloved, certainly our Savior would want us to take from his message to disciples about John the Baptist and Elijah. There's something that's in this for us to take home and to go into the world by. And we can disagree about some of the details of this. Some think even that Elijah will come physically. The Jews to this day do. He's still coming because they don't believe Messiah has come. So they, they, they make a seat for him at the table or at their seders or whatever they're, they're having. That's for Elijah, the empty seat at the table. 
because he must come first. Well, beloved, we don't believe in that sort of things, and I don't believe there's another physical coming of Elijah, but there is this church. And likened here to two witnesses who verify the truth as it is in Jesus, two witnesses who say yea and amen because Jesus has come. And beloved, that's what we take away here. They came down, did the first disciples, those privileged ones, from this mountain to the earth, and they still had to face this seemingly contradictory thing that Jesus must die. And Jesus forewarns them, it is according as my forerunner, he must die and suffer, and so I must die. And there is this age that's being established and this kingdom, but it's not quite accomplished It will wait some time. It will wait thousands of years. It has waited. And meanwhile, the church, in the same spirit and power of Elijah, the church which is greater even in the kingdom of heaven than John, Jesus says, will testify of these things without shame, bold, All the law and the prophets point to Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of them all. The fulfillment of all the promises. And God says of him, hear him. Hear him. Go from Genesis to Malachi and Matthew to Revelation. Hear him. Hear a little old preacher is just a sinner, just limited perception, beloved. But I believe in the spirit of Christ. Hear him through whom Jesus would speak. And now let us go down from the mountain, maybe church. And let us be in this earth witnesses of the Christ who's come. And be those who are bold. Some of us have gone recently to mission field. We praise God for the opportunities. All of us have the calling, whatever we're called to do, to be those who shine forth of another. And who will suffer for it. Who will not be liked, not only, but hated for it, as Jesus says. And the whole world will laugh at us and they they will not just ignore us, but they will have nothing to do with us. And they will slay us in the street. And this seems to be how the New Testament identifies what's going to happen increasingly as the false church takes over and scribes and others in the church and liberal theologians reinterpret not only Malachi, but Genesis 1 and creation and the promise to Abraham and all of the New Testament as this book of tolerance and pluralism And this book that highlights maybe Moses and maybe Elijah, but certainly not Jesus as the one of all the ones. And as his people in this false church with scribes and philosophers and theologians that thinks it knows better than Jesus and they would have us hear them. And God's saying to us, now you hear my son. Hear him. Beloved, let us do that. Sovereign Grace Church, may we be known as the church that hears only one voice, the voice of Jesus. 
and is content not only to hear, but to believe and to do. Amen. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, as we would hear the word that Jesus gives us to hear. And shout it. The silence may no longer be except the silence of wisdom and of reverence, but the shouting and the testifying of the truth as it is in Jesus. Oh God, may it go from here. May it be in our families and in our relationships, in our work and play, in everything that we are your witnesses. We are the people of your good pleasure on the other side of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and just in these latter days before he comes again. God, we pray how long. We are tired, we are weary, and we long, Father, to hear that one voice clearly and to be given faith to say, here I am, Lord. What would you have me to do? We thank you for your house worship together today. We pray you would continue to bless us And may our church prosper with your blessing all the week in the rest as it is in Jesus. For his sake we pray, amen.